Hey there. Before we get to the conversation, we wanted to tell you about the Getting Smart Smart Update. Do you love hearing about new innovations in learning? Every week, we send out a newsletter blast to thousands of leaders in the field that highlights what we're thinking about, what we're excited about, and of course, the most innovative things in education. If you're not on the list yet, then we'd love to have you. Sign up for the newsletter at gettingsmart.com slash smartupdate. All right, let's jump in. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderick, and today I'm joined by Robert Simmons III. Uh, Dr. Simmons is a scholar and advocate uh, for diversity, equity, and inclusion. He's a scholar in residence and scholar of anti-racist praxis at the School of Education at American University, uh, where my friend Sylvia Burwell is, uh, is president, a great institution in Washington, D.C. Robert, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here um, and uh, join the uh, podcast, um, listen to multiple episodes. So uh, enjoy the uh, uh, guests that you have on and just looking forward to having a conversation. Dr. Simmons, you for decades have have been a a real advocate for equity. I'd love the backstory, like how and why did it become your life's work? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, if it wasn't my life's work, I feel like my mother and grandmother um, and my uncle in particular would uh, not let me in the house. Um, My um, mother and father were uh, at Spelman and Morehouse. And um, I I have a signed uh, first edition copy of Coretta Scott King's autobiography um, that she signed uh, from the time that um, they worked with her um, after Dr. King's death. Um, and also, you know, it's, it's kind of the counter narrative to, um, what you see in particular with black men being incarcerated, but my father had a Morehouse degree, but also spent the majority of my life incarcerated. Um, so I feel, I felt compelled and continue to feel compelled because of that, um, to not only write a new narrative for how people talk and think about, um, uh, young people of color, um, but also just standing on the shoulders of, of my mother and my uncle in particular, um, for the ways in which they viewed the world um, and how it influenced um, uh, my growing up and my current work. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, it's, uh, in some ways, you were born uh, born into the work. Correct. Born into the work. My mother is a uh, librarian, been a librarian for maybe 25 years. So um, always have on my book nerd shirt. Um, and I you know, probably buy a book or two a week. Um, just because I love to read books um, and being around books uh, calms me. Uh, and so I think that uh, for me, my mother's influence uh, in my life, um, not just as a mom, but as, as a role model, as someone who is willing to tell me about myself um, at moments um, is, is something that I uh, will deeply uh, respect um, and love about her. Uh, how about specifically um, education? When and how did you make that decision? I always wanted to be a teacher. Like there was no, you know, uh, going back and forth. I went to college um, as, a, as a senior in high school. We had to do a service project. And uh, my service project uh, was at an elementary school in Detroit. And um, we organized a fundraiser playing basketball with the kids. And I was in a third grade classroom tutoring. And 
I left that experience and went to college and knew that I wanted to be a teacher. Like I'm one of the folks that, you know, went in and that's what I wanted to do. Always knew about the school of education, figured out what I needed to do to get in and, um, and become a teacher. And that was, that was my hook. And, And I think for me, it was also this understanding that one of the greatest acts of social justice and the way to facilitate social change is through teaching. Um, and like, you know, it, it, teaching it in and of itself is a revolutionary act. Um, in particular, when I think about the legacy of black folks, uh, not being able to being taught to read, um, as slaves. And like, it was, it was viewed as a crime for white people, any people to teach slaves to read. Um, so for me, it was always like, well, Hey, like, you know, I want to participate in that act of revolution. Uh, so I'm going to go teach young people and went back to my own neighborhood, um, to teach. Um, and my first teaching job was at uh, Jamison Elementary School um, right off of uh, McGraw in uh, Detroit. Uh, I was born and raised in Ann Arbor uh, d- down down the street. So uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate the area. How, how did you find Hamlin or how did Hamlin University find you? Yeah, uh, it actually found me. Um, I was a teacher and um, you know, was going to enroll in the PhD program at the University of Michigan um, and had to move for family reasons. And as I moved, I knew I couldn't stay at the University of Michigan. So I had to figure something out. Um, I had missed the deadline to go to the University of Minnesota. And so one of my good friends who uh, was uh, in Minnesota knew a professor at the University of Michigan and said, oh, you should talk to him about what you want to do. And he said, hey, listen, Hamlin in the in the um, liberal arts world, Hamlin is like a big deal. Like it is an important institution. Don't feel like if you go to Hamlin that people won't know. You should really think about their doctoral program. And there's this guy there named Paul Gorski, um, and he is going to be the next big thing in educational equity work. And I said, Paul Gorski, who is this guy? Never heard of him. And uh, went there, and true enough, Paul wrote the first article that critiqued Ruby Payne. Um, and so Paul Gorski was my advisor, was my mentor, is now a friend, um, and was my dissertation chair. Um, and you know, my my friend's mentor at Michigan led me right by going to Hamlin, and I honestly went to Hamlin because of Paul Gorski. I did not go because of the institution, but I learned further into the work into the work. Um, that great scholars like Walter Enloe, Vivian Johnson um, were there and that, you know, you, you didn't have to be at a research one to do great scholarship and to impact uh, educational research. And so um, I'm grateful for my, my education at Hamlin, uh, the friends that I built, and I'm still close to Vivian, Paul and Walter um, all these years it, later. It's very well known in the in the upper Midwest as a, as a great ed school. Um, what some people remember, they they were quite active 20 and 30 years ago in the small schools movement in both urban and rural, uh, creating great schools centered on social justice. So it, um, it, it it's a great place. And I, I know you contributed uh, to that culture. Oh, yeah, it was a great, great time. You know, I enjoyed it. Um, still talk to some of my classmates, uh, my cohort. A um, couple times a year. So, uh, you know, don't get back to Minnesota in the winter, uh, but I willingly go back to Minnesota in the spring and the summer because it's beautiful in Minnesota in the summer. 
Uh, in the show notes, we're going to make a link to Education Evolving, our friend Ted Coldery, uh, early leader in Choice Schools, and Doug and Dee uh, Thomas that started Minnesota New Country, uh, some great micro school uh, pioneers, teacher-powered schools, uh, schools that really, um, before it was cool, took jo- social justice uh, uh, seriously. Um, Robert, this, this is a really hard, maybe an unfair question. I know it's hard to to generalize, but how do you think the last two years have been for black boys in America? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that um, being a black boy in America, I reflect on my own childhood, but also as a dad of a 10-year-old and a four-year-old. Like, so I understand black boyhood at this point through the lens of my 10 year old in particular, right? Where um, he remembers when Trayvon Martin happened and George Zimmerman was acquitted and just how I cried. He's old enough to remember that, right? Not with great detail, but at 10, you know, he's old enough for us to go down to Freedom Plaza in DC the day after the major protests and see the writing on the wall. And we took pictures. We talked about its importance to black boys and why it was important for him to be an advocate for himself, but also understand the history and the legacy of the ways in which black people and and communities of color in general in the United States have experienced our democracy, right? And that it hasn't always been positive um, for many communities and how they've experienced our democracy. And we talked a lot about Tulsa. Um, I think that, you know, I actually let him watch the, uh, the murder of George Floyd and the, the television coverage of Breonna Taylor because I felt like it was important. Um, and as uh, one of my colleagues at uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, uh, David Stovall always says is that, you know, to be afraid to talk about race with young people is problematic because young people are old enough to experience racism. So they're old enough at any age to at least have a conversation about race and racism because they experience it anyway. Um, And so for me, um, we've had some very open and honest conversations about it, um, you know, and it's helped that, you know, he's has a great relationship with my mother. um, And this summer for the first time in two years, he went to Detroit. Um, you know, he's been going to see my mother in Detroit since he was, I don't know, three or four. Um, and she continued that education because of her legacy as a alum of Spelman, but also, um, her time as a librarian, she continues that education with him. Um, and so I I think that for me, you know, I learned through him, I think in general, black boys that I've talked to, um, have, there are two or three ways that folks have responded, right? I think some are numb to it all because they experience uh, marginalization and police brutality and other forms of violence, hunger, et cetera, on a regular basis. So the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor stuff and the protests wasn't new to them, right? Then you have other young black boys who um, were totally surprised by it for whatever reason. Then you have those who in the middle who were surprised at the protest, but not the violence, but then, you know, are old enough to articulate to me as young, young people. Yeah, but like I, nothing is going to change because we've been here before with Rodney King, 
with Malice Green being, you know, you're from Ann Arbor. I'm sure you remember the Malice Green uh, murder uh, by Walter Butson and that whole crew of uh, Starsky and Hutch that were the police that uh, roamed freely over 12th and Claremont um, in Detroit, um, who recognize that we've been here before, right? And I think for someone in my age, where I'm almost 50 at this point, like, this isn't new, right? It's just that this brave young black girl who was 17, I believe at the time, caught on camera the experience of uh, George, uh, of, of uh, the brother in um, Minnesota. Um, and when George Floyd was murdered, you could just see it live on camera, right? You didn't see Rodney King live, right? It wasn't, it was a videotape Malice Green, you only knew about it if you lived in Detroit. And I told someone recently on a panel discussion about, they said, well, how come they didn't burn down Detroit and, you know, in 93 or 94 when Malice Green was murdered? And I said, have you ever been to 12th and Claremont where that part of Detroit is? I said, having grown up there and not too far from the social uprising in 67 and all that, I said, there's nothing there to burn down. Like they literally burnt down the city in the 60s. Like, it's not an exaggeration. Like, and parts of the city have not recovered. So, you know, I think that Black boys have experienced it differently. Um, and I do think that, um, you know, Black boys who um, identify um, uh, as gay or trans or same gender loving, they've also experienced it differently. And, and I have challenged numerous spaces around the ways in which we celebrate hyper-Black masculinity in some barber shops is deeply problematic for the ways in which we challenge ourselves, in particular as Black people, and say, do all Black lives matter the same? Do Black trans lives matter the same as Black cisgendered heterosexual male lives? To me, they do. But is that the way in which we express our commitment to the justice conditions of Black boys in America? I'm, I'm not sure. So the dialogue about uh, police violence has surfaced systemic races, racism in, in America. And maybe one positive sign is that we're, we're at least able to have more conversations like this than we were a few years ago. But, but Robert, here, here's, I guess, what worries me about the moment that we share is this triple ratchet um, of inequity. Um, when I think about this winner take all economy that we're in, you know, life with smart machines that's driving crazy wealth uh, to the, the top 10th of 1%, the climate change and the global pandemic, when you put those three together, they're ratcheting up inequality and the rich got a lot richer in the last two years um, and historically marginalized communities got screwed, even more so. Um, and so I'm, I guess I'm worried that there's these built-in ratchets that are expanding inequity, even though we, we may be in polite company able to uh, more frequently discuss it, the structure or the structures of our society are expanding inequity in a in really, really dangerous ways. And uh, we'd love to have you just reflect on, you know, what, what, what's the new social contract that helps deal with that? And then let's dive into what, 
what role education can play as a as a part of that solution set. So yeah, how do, I mean, how do we fix this, Robert? One one of my um, intellectual mentors from afar, activist mentors from afar, I've never met, but but the way that she lives her life and articulates a commitment to justice is Angela Davis, right? Angela Davis always talks about you cannot solve issues of race in America without dealing with capitalism. Like, and again, I'm not saying this is someone who's a Marxist or a socialist, any of those things. All I'm saying is that if you follow Angela Davis's brilliance, right, and you think about the ways in which capitalism is structured, in order for capitalism to work, you need unemployment and poverty. You need winners and losers. That, that's just the nature of the beast. It just so happens that capitalism intersecting with systemic and institutional racism means that white people, uh, a subset of white people, like not all white people, right? Let's be clear. A subset of white folks are predisposed to access to this institutional wealth, while because of you have the, the capitalism, institutional, systemic racism, as a part of this equation, people of color are then therefore less likely to have positive outcomes in education, healthcare, poverty, I mean, disproportionately experiencing uh, uh, challenges around food sovereignty for indigenous brothers and sisters, um, incarceration, so on and so forth. So I think that um, it, it all works together and you have to tackle the economic system. Um, and I think that again, uh, shout out to my colleagues, um, who are education economists. And I learned today that there's actually an agricultural economist world, which I never knew about from this guy at uh, Duke um, on a conference call we had. We really need to unpack the ways in which people have access to a living wage, not just the social safety net that the government provides, right? And again, I'm not suggesting that people don't need SNAP, WIC, child tax credit, any of that. What I am saying is that in order for communities to achieve generational wealth, there also has to be a pathway for them to have access to the tools of self-determination, being able to provide for yourself, having your own banks, being able to grow your own food, owning your own grocery stores. Um, and, you know, and, and there is a generation, I don't want to be doom and gloom. There is a generation of young people who are taking this on, um, and shout out to a young brother, um, who I would love to see on a podcast named Raphael Wright. And he's trying to launch the, uh, only black owned grocery store in Detroit at this point. And it's been on CNN. Um, and I am biased because he is one of my former middle school students. Um, and whenever I see him on the news, I always text him and say like, this does not mean that um, you, you, I don't get a discount in the store. Like, so let's be clear, regardless of how famous you are, I still get a discount as your middle school teacher for three years and your middle school basketball coach. So like, let's be clear. So there is a group of young people taking this on that I think are really moving the needle. Um, and I think that at some point, you know, old fogies uh, <laughs> like myself, need to figure out how to do this intergenerational conversation to share lessons of what we've learned, but also think about what can we learn as an older generation from a younger generation of social justice uh, warriors and um, activists and communities. Yeah, I appreciate that. It, it's uh, the way we think about capitalism. It's uh, the way we've structured our democracy, which prioritizes access um, through wealth 
right? And so we've got a tax code that benefits wealthy people and wealthy corporations. And so it's it's not just the capitalist system, it's the way we've structured uh, democracy, uh, access to voting, access to um, tax privileges um, th- that are a, a critical part of this. Uh, so, so I appreciate that. Let, let's sort of shift to education and, and just think on behalf of the education leaders, teachers, teacher leaders that are listening. What's our, what's our role and how can we both be activists and, and help raise activists that. Yeah. I mean, teaching is a form of activism, right? So whenever I hear teachers talking about, Oh my God, like all of this, like, teachers are becoming activists, like teaching is a form of activism, right? Like it just is, right? It is a revolutionary act. So I think that um, teachers working with young people to raise their level of critical thinking and critical consciousness um, is so important, right? And I just find that uh, for me, um, helping them connect the dots and deal with uh, the nuance of the work um, is, is really critical. And I remember talking to someone who um, was at, my son came home one day and he says, dad, did you know that um, I am no longer celebrating Columbus day? And I was like, oh, all right, well, what are you, what's, what's going on here? Like he didn't discover America. He, he says, dad, are you serious? And I'm playing along. And he said, you can't discover something when people are already there. And then Columbus killed half the people there. I said, yeah, that sounds like genocide to me. He said, exactly, dad. I said, where'd you get this from? He said, well, my teacher started talking about Indigenous Peoples Day. And I was like, yo, that's a revolutionary act, not because the teacher wanted the kids to believe X, Y, and Z about Columbus, but, sh- but the teacher created a, a, a statement of fact. People were already here when Columbus got here. Columbus's presence and, and this whole colonization, all of this other stuff and led to genocide, which led to death, which led to indigenous brothers and sisters being put in these uh, school, these reform schools and all this other stuff. Right. And it's not unique to America like they did it in Australia um, with the Maori and all these other things. Right. But it, to the American experiment, it then led to chattel slavery, which does make the formation of our democracy unique from other uh, ways in which slavery um, and and those types of things are manifested. And so for me, you know, that moment with my son was testament to the power of teachers, whether I agreed with him or not, which I did, but whether I agreed with him or not, the fact that he was critically thinking about how our democracy was formed and what role did Columbus play and why should we call it Indigenous Peoples Day uh, was so important. And then the last thing I think for teachers and school leaders and school staff is that, you know, um, the ways in which we reimagine school going forward are so important, right? And it's been one of my biggest frustration points recently is that And again, I was naive, optimistic, maybe. I thought coming out of the pandemic, I mean, we're not out of it, but coming into this part of the pandemic, I should say, phase, whatever, 2.0, 3.0, whatever version we're on, um, is I thought we would reimagine education. Like I thought there would be a greater proclivity to consider outdoor education, to consider 
a three-day, four-day school week. Think about a 45-15 schedule. Think about cross-listing courses at different schools and figuring out if your school only has three AP courses or four AP courses, this school has 10. Let's figure out how to have kids cross-register, like they're going to a university. Hadn't happened, right? And instead, what I'm finding is that educators remain marginalized um, because of the system. Students and their families remain marginalized because of the system. And I think that you're beginning to see uh, a significant exit of bus drivers, of teachers at a rate higher than I believe we can actually replace them with qualified educators in a given year. So I think we're going to have to manage not even summer learning loss, but just a lack of critical engagement by trained professionals. And I think that, you know, some people will say, well, Robert, we can just take people who are retired and put them in classrooms. I don't believe in that because it's the deprofessionalizing of teaching, right? And teaching is a profession. It's like becoming a barber. It's like being a plumber. It's like being a doctor. Like you have to go to school because to learn the art and the science uh, of it. So I think that there is a need for folks in higher ed to step in to figure out how we can we be supportive um, to work with folks in K-12, um, both as learners um, and thought partners. I guess another tough question, when you think about education, um, and the, the opportunity to improve uh, DEI. I'm, I'm wondering if you can reflect on on the relative importance of structural change versus cultural change versus curriculum change. Do, I mean, is the answer you have to do all of those things? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to try to do them all at the same time, right? I think you can, and I always equ- equate it to, you know, you can have the greatest curriculum but the worst teacher and the curriculum won't matter. You can have the greatest curriculum and a great teacher, but the structures of the schooling process may not allow their greatness and their brilliance to be reflected onto those children, right? And so I think that it's problematic when you don't try to do all of those things. If I had my choice, I think teachers are brilliant. I just do. I think teachers are some of the most creative. I mean, who signs up to a profession to educate 40 young people with all sorts of other things going on? Some of them don't even want to be in school, but yet you get a Rima paper per semester. And in my days, a dry erase marker, a piece of chalk. And like, you're supposed to educate this group of young people with the textbook that may be five years outdated. Who signs up to do that? Like you're either a bit crazy or you're just deeply committed to the revolution, right? So committed that you're willing to make that sacrifice and figure it out. And great teachers will figure out a bad curriculum, but great teachers cannot exist in a system that is flawed, that dehumanizes their brilliance, but also dehumanizes the young people uh, that they serve. So if I had my choice, it's going to be the culture and the systems pieces, because I can hire great, brilliant teachers who, again, and I'm guilty of this and I'll own this from my days as a teacher, look like the curriculum didn't make sense on Tuesday, what you're asking me to do. I'm not doing that because I know my students, so I'm gonna do what's in the best interest of my kids. 
You can test them on it if you want, but this is going to be the thing that's going to keep this group of, uh, in my case, black kids on the east side of Detroit alive, but also ensure that they can be contributing citizens um, to the east side of Detroit or wherever they go um, in our country. And so I'll take culture and systems change. Curriculum, eh, I can get to that if I had to choose. Um, But those are the two of the three that um, I really am hopeful that uh, we can figure out quickly. Robert, you've been a, a, a longtime advocate of service learning. Why, why is that important? You know, for me, again, as someone who believes that learning can't just happen in a textbook, I think that integrating um, the actual course content with ways in which young people can contribute to their community is super important. The best learning happens in context. Uh, you can't learn about the biology of soil without farming. Um, it like, it just doesn't make sense. And so for me, service learning was just a natural pathway, um, to merge my commitment to community organizing and community with some of the best practices in education, right? Teaching and learning, uh, theory, curriculum design and things like that to bring the two of them together. Um, and you know, um, I accidentally got into service learning. Like it was an accident because I was doing this project to build an urban farm when I was a first year professor at a school in Detroit and I needed a grant. So I called up a colleague and said, hey, here's what I'm trying to do. I don't have enough money in my budget. What do you think? They said, oh, you should call Michigan Campus Compact and apply for a grant. And it's called service learning, what you're trying to do. And I was like, what? Like, this isn't, isn't this just what we should be doing? Like, this is what I was doing as a teacher. This just seems like good teaching, right? But again, as Gloria Latson Billings always says, culturally relevant pedagogy is just good teaching. Right. So to me, service learning is just good teaching. Right. It's just what you uh, should do. And so from there, uh, wrote a lot, um, did a lot of research, did a lot of grants on service learning, did a lot with um, promoting this, the role of service years in um, education, launched the leading men program, uh, which is now housed at the Literacy Lab um, in Washington, D.C., uh, which is a pathway for black and Latino men to get into the education profession. Um, so I've seen real impact um, in the work um, and, you know, have enjoyed uh, my time uh, learning from one of my great colleagues at um, uh, Penn State University, Nicole Webster. Uh, she was one of the folks that I learned from about the roles, the ways in which you can center race and racism and urban education and service learning. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I've had great mentors and uh, partners in advancing my knowledge because I wasn't trained in service learning like it was an accident. So I learned it as an academic that what I was doing was actually part of an academic discipline called service learning. I was like, oh, is it really? Oh, all right. Well, like, what do I need to do? What do I need to read? Um, Who do I need to talk to? And so went to all sorts of conferences, met Andy Furco um, and all these other great leaders um, um, that were um, doing um, all sorts of amazing things in the field. So uh, it it was a great journey. Hey, speaking speaking of... uh recruiting and developing uh, great uh, diverse talent. Uh, thanks for serving as a fellow board member of the Latinx Education Collaborative. Um, why is that work uh, that our friend, brother Edgar is leading? Why is that important to you? Yeah, shout out to the big homie, Edgar Palacios. Um, you know, got a lot of love and respect. I mean, for me, um, my dissertation was on the journey of black teachers. I grew up in a part of Detroit that was near the southwest side of Detroit, which was largely where Latino brothers and sisters lived. So I had friends who were from that community, 
also grew up in that part of Detroit on the border with Dearborn. So had friends of mine who uh, were Arab, Chaldean, Palestinian, et cetera. Um, and so for me, I had a great appreciation for the ways in which um, people of color worked and educated uh, folks in their community. Um, and so have always uh, been focused as an academic on the plight of black teachers, but over time have begun to appreciate uh, because of how I grew up, uh, the ways in which other communities of color um, are represented in the teaching profession. Um, and when Edgar asked if I would join the board, I said, sure, um, you know, and uh, I'm willing to be helpful. And I learned about Latino teachers um, and Latinx teachers because I took a year off from teaching in Detroit and was a teacher in Santo Domingo. Um, I found this just before the internet. I guess there was an internet. I just didn't use it like that. But it was in a uh, classified ad in the Detroit Free Press uh, for a job at the International School of Santo Domingo. Uh, when I was an undergrad, my um, uh, Latin American politics professor was a guy named Thomas Castreva. He found enough money for this you know, poor little kid from Detroit to go to Peru. Um, and I was there looking at Tupac Amaro because I was a Tupac fan. I was like, oh, great. And I ended up teaching in Santo Domingo, uh, signed up for a year, was there for six months because they had a uh, hurricane um, and uh, was just like, hmm. Martial law isn't my thing. Uh, so like, I'm going to go back to Detroit for now and, and keep teaching. Uh, so I also learned a lot from my Dominican colleagues um, about the value, obviously on an international level, but nonetheless, the value of young people seeing people who look like them um, in schools, but also the impact that it had on your adult pe colleagues um, because I was not Dominican, right? So for me, I learned about Dominican culture and the ways in which young folks experience life in uh, Santo Domingo in particular from my Dominican colleagues. And so I think that for me to have Black and Latinx teachers in the same building as uh, racial demographics shift, communities become um, more segregated, but then you have gentrification happening, uh, I think it's important to stand in solidarity with uh, Edgar um, and Latinx educators across America. So uh, shout out to Edgar Palacios. Shout out to Edgar. Um, and thanks for your work on hunger. This gets back to some of the structural issues that we got to work on, but you, you've done great work with uh, No Kids Hungry. What, what speaks to your heart about that work? Yeah, I mean, I, I just think for me, you know, um, food is, 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 is a form of social justice, right? Food access, um, in particular in many communities, food sovereignty um, is super important. Um, I think the work of the No Kid Hungry campaign and Share Our Strength uh, allows me to integrate my passion for uh, working in, in communities uh, with a deeper understanding of, of the food ecosystem um, in our country. I think that for educators in particular, it is a misunderstood part of our training about the role of food, lunch, snap ed, all these other things. Um, and I think for me, again, service learning is what brought me into understanding food because I did work with urban farms and urban gardening. Um, and when I was the CEO of a network of charter schools in DC, we launched a hydroponic garden and a workforce development program but I also am known for uh, crashing and burning the food contract that we had. And the vendor was pissed. They threatened to take us to court. But I said, you're giving this group of young people crap food 
And then you wonder why we may have behavior problems with the group of people who are young people who are already two or three times marginalized. We're going to find a vendor who's going to provide us healthy meals, healthy food every day. That means they're cooking it at 5 a.m. They're delivering breakfast to us at 7 a.m. That means it's more likely to be fresh made, right? And I saw the kitchen. And so anyway, for me, the work um, at Share Our Strength and No Kid Hungry just uh, speaks to all those things that are super important. And the last piece is my grandmother was a cook, um, a professional cook. She worked at Sanders in Detroit. Um, she had this roll recipe that uh, people used to come from all over the city of Detroit to get. I had no idea who these people were, why they were at our house, but they were coming for her rolls. My uncle and my mother have tried to replicate it, but it is unreplicable. Like, because she never wrote down the recipe. And we've tried to figure it out through kind of stories, things that we could find. Um, but um, I grew up in a family where food was important, um, where soul food wasn't just about all the calories um, and uh, perhaps uh, a little too much salt, but soul was about nourishing the soul of Black folks um, in a world that often dehumanized them um, and marginalized them. Um, in a variety of ways. So uh, food speaks to my heart, speaks to my soul, um, but also speaks to the legacy that uh, my grandmother handed down to me. Hey, Robert, we uh, appreciate the work that you're doing both inside and outside the uh, the classroom. Uh, we've talked about education today, but you we work with a, a wide uh, range of, of organizations on diversity, equity, and inclusion. If people want to learn more about that work, uh, where would you send them? Uh, I would send them to the American University website. They can find me there. Uh, they can also uh, find me um, on Twitter. Um, you, are, my, you are on Twitter, brother. <laughs> yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm active on Twitter uh, at Robert underscore Simmons three. Uh, they can also uh, go to my website, Robert W. Simmons dot uh, com. Um, and I you know, have a blog there and my random musings from Twitter show up on my uh, feed. Um, and the last thing I do want to say um, is shout out to brother um, that passed away. Uh, Michael Williams, I believe is his last name. Um, I only knew him as Omar. I actually never knew his uh, real name. Um, but I, I think that uh, the ways in which Omar as a character on the wire uh, problematized the nuance of black masculinity as a gay black man, um, as someone who robbed drug dealers, um, it really spoke to so many uh, people um, so just want to send shout out and prayers to, to him and his family um, at his uh, passing at his uh, Brooklyn apartment uh, in New York City. And uh, check out Robert's uh, Twitter um, for more on that. He's got some great videos and and tributes. Uh, RobertWSimmons.com and at Robert underscore Simmons three. Dr. Simmons, we appreciate you and your journey and your contributions and uh, and your time uh, today for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Keep going with the podcast. I listen to it as often as I can. I, I enjoy the guests um, and appreciate you um, as one of the uh, folks in uh, education who have led the way um, over your career. So uh, much respect uh, for the legacy that you are leaving for others to follow behind. Hey, keep learning and uh, keep innovating for equity. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. 
In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.